You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, Pastor, here at Midtown Two Notch, very glad that you're here uh, worshiping with us. If you are new with us, hopefully we were able to get you one of our bulletins today. Uh, We would love if you were able uh, to fill the bottom of that out and drop it in the offering basket at the end of our time together uh, today. We love to just acknowledge that you're here and get to know you a little bit better uh, as well. So we've been uh, working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're we're pausing and doing a little three-week mini-series where we're talking about marriage, sex, and singleness uh, again, marriage, sex, and singleness. If you were not able to be with us last week uh, to hear the sermon, I would want to encourage you to go back and listen to that one, uh, largely because uh, you, you'll be able to understand this, I, I believe, this sermon today a little bit more if you, uh, if you take a listen to, to, to that sermon. Today we'll be talking about specifically uh, sex within the context of marriage, again, specifically sex within the context uh, of marriage. A few things I need to say before we get going uh, into that. First of all, if you are single, I need you to not tune me out for the next 35, 40 minutes, depending on how I'm feeling. I need you to not tune me out for a few reasons. A, we're still going to be looking into the Word of God. We're not coming up with any type of uh, man-made philosophies or anything like that. We're going to be dealing with the Scriptures and what they point us to. Uh, Also, uh, if you are single, many of you who are single, uh, there's a good chance that you'll be married at some point in your future, and obviously that will apply very directly to uh, you then. But also, I I want to say something that that I think could be a little bit misunderstood and misconstrued uh, in the church. I believe there's oftentimes a... Uh, a feeling of disconnect or maybe a feeling of insecurity around married people and single people talking about married people issues. Right? I, I, my experience is that oftentimes single people feel like, well, I can't really say anything to that person because I'm not married and I don't really understand what, what, what is fully going on. Uh, I would say uh, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be able to point people to the Lord in various facets uh, of life, including the topic of sex. I feel like outside of the church, uh, sex is talked about very explicitly oftentimes, but inside the church, it is not. Like it's kind of, we'll bring it up, we'll mention it a little bit, and we just kind of keep going because it makes us feel uncomfortable because we're in the church and we're not supposed to talk about those type of things. Only problem with that is the Bible actually talks about sex a lot. It actually has a lot to say about sex in the Bible. I said last week that generally speaking, when I talk about sex, I'm PG-13, right? Not rated R, not TVMA. Generally speaking, uh, we got to be able to talk about it, but not very graphic. I'm going to have to amend that a little bit. I'm going to let the Bible do it. I'm going to let the Bible be the one that does it. Sometimes the Bible gets a little bit explicit. We'll get there if it makes you uncomfortable. There's nothing I can do. We got to talk about it because it's in the Bible. So, uh, the Corinth at this time, the Corinthians, I should say, the church in Corinth at this time kind of had two different views, two different approaches to dealing with the, the, the concept or the topic of sex. So if you've been with us for a while, you've heard us, you've probably heard me say a few times that in Corinth, think about it like, like Las Vegas, maybe even taken up a notch. Uh, from, a, from a, just how explicit and how out, the, out there they were when it comes to issues regarding sex. So they had a bunch of temples, and oftentimes they would have prostitutes come work in the temples, and as a part of worshiping the romance god or the sex god, people would just come in and sleep with the prostitutes, like in the middle of the day, like, like leave work, go in, sleep with a prostitute, and like go back about your business and what you were doing. This is the type of thing that's going on in Corinth. So this is an extremely hypersexualized culture uh, that this church, the Corinthian church, finds itself in. So some of the Christians in Corinth took on the cultural view 
of, hey, it's, it's, it's sex. It's not really that big of a deal. Our bodies don't matter that much. You can have sex with whoever you want to. It's an appetite that you have. You, you're able to fulfill. It's just like being hungry, right? You're hungry. You eat, right? If you have sexual desire, then you can have sex with whoever you want to. As long as you're not harming anybody, then it's all good. And so we had kind of dealt with that group last week when we talked about how important the body is, how important God says the body is, and that we use it for his glory and for his purposes. But there was this other camp also in the Corinthian church who saw all the ridiculousness of the sexualized culture that they lived in, and they were like, I think we should just stop having sex altogether. I think it's, I think it's just evil, right? So there's, there's oftentimes people who overcorrect to uh, something that they see going wrong. So rather than redeeming it and looking at it the way God looks at it, and rather than seeing it as a good thing, they were just like, I don't, we shouldn't do this at all, right? And so they write to Paul, like, Paul, settle this issue for us. Help us understand how we are to approach this, the topic of sex. And that leads us to chapter 7, verse 1. Paul writes to them, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You'll notice that that's in quotation marks, right? This is what was written to Paul in a letter when they're asking him about sexuality. How should Christians uh, uh, react or respond in light of the, the hypersexualized culture that they're currently living in? They wrote to him saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's exactly what I just said. They're saying it's good to not even have sex at all. They're looking at the culture and like, this is horrible. I don't see anything good. I don't know how to plan on having kids. Talk about that later. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, a lot of people uh, look at this verse to say that Paul is saying because of sexual, sexual temptation, you should go get married. Right? You, you should have a wife. You should have a husband because of temptation towards sexual immorality. I actually don't believe that that's what Paul is saying. He says, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. I believe that word have there is a euphemism uh, for uh, sex or sexual intercourse with your spouse. So he's saying because of the temptation that you'll find for sexual immorality, each husband should have his wife and each woman should have her own husband. That's who you are to be. We shouldn't be having anyone else. Paul Paul is very aware of what's going on in Corinth at the time. And he says, each man, no, you should have your wife because they're asking him, is it wrong? Because married people are asking him, is it wrong to have sex altogether? Is that just a sinful thing? He's like, no, no, no. Each man should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So that word conjugal just means relating to marriage or the relationship of a married couple. And so he's saying each husband and wife should give to each other uh, their, their, their conjugal rights, their rights to, to engage in sex with one another. Paul says that the husband and the wife should We'll phrase it, you should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. I want to make sure we have, thank you, I want to make sure that we have a firm understanding on what exactly marriage is, right? Because if you don't approach this with a biblical perspective on what marriage is actually supposed to be, Paul is about to mess you completely and all the way up. So I want to make sure we have a clear understanding. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Real quick, just to make sure we understand what what, what is the goal of a Christian marriage? What is a Christian marriage really all about? Ephesians 5, starting at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, when uh, when he reads that, when he writes that to them, I should say he's quoting a passage in Genesis where Adam and Eve become married, become one. Um, So that's what he's bringing back up to the church in Ephesus that he's writing to, verse 32. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says that, that this, this union between man and woman that we see for the first time between Adam and Eve, he's saying it's actually a very profound mystery that wasn't previously known and understood, that this relationship of marriage actually refers to a relationship that Christ has with his church. That's, that's actually what's really all about. I'll try to do that again. Uh, so Paul is saying marriage is actually really about the relationship that God has with his people, that Jesus has with his bride, so to speak, who is the church. So that the love that, that is present with a husband and wife, a Christian husband and a Christian wife, the love that they have, the, the enjoyment of each other that they have, the delight in each other that they have, the unity that they have is to reflect the love that Jesus has for his people and the love that his people have back for Christ. And in doing so, Christian marriages are to display to the world what Christ's love is like and what it is like also to love Christ as well as his collective people. This gives extreme purpose to marriage. This tells for the married people in the room, your marriage is not primarily about you. It's not primarily about your needs getting met. It's not primarily about your preferences being fulfilled. It's not primarily about you being more comfortable. It's not primarily about how you are treated. It's not primarily about you being personally fulfilled in your relationship. It is primarily about showing off the relationship that Christ has with his church. Man, we get marriage so twisted. We do the same thing the Corinthians did. We, we, we take in our culture's view of marriage and what it's all supposed to be about. And so we, we, we believe that a marriage is good if I am getting all of my needs met and all of my preferences and everything that I expected coming into the marriage, then the marriage is good. But he's saying the primary purpose of marriage is to actually be a display, right? To be like a preview for the love that Christ has for his church and the love that the church has back for our Savior, Jesus Christ. As a couple cherishes and enjoys one another, it displays how God cherishes and enjoys his people and how his people cherish and enjoy him as well. Now, that's the goal of marriage, right? That's the purpose. In order to fully display and show off God's love, there needs to be a closeness in the marriage. Right? The, the, the married couple should enjoy a, a, a deep and personal love uh, with each other. They need to be able to enjoy just being together with each other. And God gives them one very specific and beautiful blessing to help them and allow them to do that even more, which is sex. God created sex to actually allow the married couple to live and walk in and pursue the unity, the love that he has called them to display. The, uh, as they come together and are united and grow in intimacy through sex, they are, they are able to enjoy each other more, love each other more, and thus display Christ's love better to each other. And, then, and as all who are around them see the love that they have for each other, they're able to display the love that Christ has for his church. It's something special that married people get to share just between the two of them. You have anybody in your life that you just got an inside thing or joke with or whatever, and anytime you're with them, it's just like it's, it's the best thing ever, and you, you don't really let anybody in. You probably should, but you really don't let anybody else in on it. But it bonds you, right? Like, it, it unites you two together. It, it allows you to have something that's like, this is our thing, and this it unites us. That is what sex is to be for the married couple. This is just our thing. It's just between us, a way, a way of acting out. Sex is a way of acting out the fact that all of me loves all of you. It's what sex is to be. You ever gave someone 
So there's different types of greetings. I talked about this a little bit last week. There's different, different types of greetings that you might have with somebody. You might shake their hand. That shows some type of camaraderie. Uh, you might give them a hug. That shows some type of camaraderie and love that, that you have with that person. You ever have somebody that when you saw them, you just wanted to give them the hugest hug ever? Right? That, that when you saw them, it's just like because that, in, in that embrace, it communicates and celebrates some type of love, some type of unity that you have with them. That is what sex is to be for the married couple. Sex is obviously a way of building intimacy. You ever had a time with somebody, somebody you're probably really close to right now, but y'all had a moment where y'all just shared something deep and personal about yourselves with each other, and it just bonded you? And like from that point on, it's like, yeah, y'all, we kind of been tight ever since when we shared that with each other. This is what marriage is supposed to be for the married couple. It's a way of building trust with each other. Same thing when you, when you share something deep about yourself with somebody else. And oftentimes when they do the same, when they reciprocate it, and that trust is maintained, it, that grows together as you continue to share yourselves with each other. This is what sex is to be and do for the married couple. Sex is to be something that the two get to enjoy together. You, ever got, you got somebody uh, that's, that you're tight with, that you're cool with, and you guys love to go do something that both of you really enjoy. I don't care what it is. It can be any type of hobby or whatever it is. And it's like, this is something that we really enjoy together. And even that unites and bonds you two together. This is what sex is supposed to be for the married couple. One way to describe it uh, might be, it's like echoing of the wedding vows over and over again throughout the marriage. It's an echoing. It's a, it's a yes, we're, we're still together. We still have this love together. And we get to celebrate it and communicate it to each other over and over. I said, I brought this up a little bit earlier about how I'm usually PG-13. Sometimes the Bible is not. Go to Proverbs chapter 5. We're going to start it at verse 15. Proverbs 5, 15. This is Solomon talking to his sons, showing his sons what he wishes for them, showing his sons what he wants for them in their life. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. So a cistern is a tank for storing water. So he's saying, get your water from your own cistern, your own place. Verse 16, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? This is a, a rhetorical question. Should you get water from different scattered streams? It's a rhetorical question. No, get your water from your own stream. You don't want nobody else's water. Verse 17, <laughs> let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. How are you going to let other strangers get water from your stream? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Then it gets to his point. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's saying just as you would enjoy water, as you would enjoy having your thirst quenched by water, enjoy your spouse, enjoy your wife is what he's saying. I desire for you as my sons. This is what I want you to have. Verse 19, some of you already read it. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. That's a compliment back then. Okay, that's a compliment. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. He wasn't talking about water, in case you didn't know that. I don't know if you, you, know if you caught that or not. He wasn't talking about water. He said, fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in love. Be intoxicated. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Be intoxicated. Let her, as you delight in her, let it drive you crazy is what he's saying. To the point where you lose yourself is what he is saying. 
that he desires for his sons to have in marriage. Again, this is an important thing to God that married couples have this, this connection, this desire, this ongoing delight in each other because of the love that the married couple is called to display and show off. Right, This intense desire and passionate love for each other is a good thing. And God is saying through Solomon here in Proverbs, go pursue that. Pursue that. Get drunk on your love with your spouse. Pursue that intentionally and actively. Pursue romance and sex with your spouse is what Solomon is saying here. The Bible talks about this kind of thing because this matters to God. He wants us as a married people to enjoy our spouses, enjoy our relationship with our spouse, enjoy intimacy with our spouse. And it's easy for many uh, married couples to get to a place where you're really more like roommates than spouses. You're really more like roommates. Like you, you, you live together, you eat together a lot of the time, you say hey to each other, but it's not this, right? But, but, but it's not what, what, what Solomon is saying he desires for his sons. It's easy, especially if you, if you have kids, it's like you're roommates, but you're kind of like co-workers because now you've got these people and you've got to keep them alive in your house, right? So you have this job that's like 24-7 that you're always working on. It's very easy for that to, to take over and to suck some of the life and the joy and the vibrancy actually out of the marriage. And Proverbs is, is urging us to fight against that. What Solomon just wrote to his sons is fighting against allowing the, 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 the desire for each other to be choked out by whether it's busyness or whatever it is. You have to remember, if you were with us last week, we talked about how our bodies are an extremely important and glorious part about who we are. And we use them to communicate love with each other all the time, whether that's a hug, there might be a kiss, there might be uh, some type of, of cuddling or whatever that might be. God desires, us, desires for married people to use our bodies to cultivate oneness and love and passion for each other. We get an even more graphic picture of that in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to let you all know it's going to make some of you real uncomfortable. Here's what I want you to do. When we read this, and it makes you uncomfortable, if you're like, why in the world? If you're, if you're like, I don't even get that why this will be in the Bible, that's actually the right question to be asking. That's actually the right question. Why would the Bible put this very flowerly um, worded passage about romance and sexuality between a husband and a wife? Why would he put that in the Bible? And I would argue it's because he cares so much about the love that a husband and a wife have for each other. That he would even put words in the Bible that would make us uncomfortable. Enough intro. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. He's not He's not calling, calling her his own daughter. She's a daughter of Jerusalem or a daughter of Israel, so to speak, is how uh, they would refer to the women there at that time. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. So he's starting literally at her feet. He's going to go all the way up. He's going to do head to toe, complimenting her body, taking joy in her body, delighting in her body. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. That's a compliment. I don't get it either. It's a compliment. Don't let the metaphors throw you off. I heard a pastor say one time, don't lose the, res- the, the uh, revelation because of the illustration. So don't, don't, don't let the illustration throw you off. Verse 3. Here's where he goes even further. Verse 3. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like, thank you, brother. Your neck is like an ivory tower. 
Your eyes are pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. He just literally complimented her from head to toe. Right? Complimented her, her body, her, her appearance. He, he is taking delight in her appearance, in, in her body, and he is letting her know that he is delighting in what he is seeing as she shares herself with him. From here on, he goes to complimenting her in other ways. I don't know another way to describe it. Verse 6 How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. So many giggles. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of his fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. I'm going to let that speak for itself. Here's what's about to happen. This is going to happen next. She is going to respond to his admiration of her. She's going to respond to him. So he has seen her. He has admired her. He's let her know that he admires her. Here's how she responds. Continue on in verse 9. Now, again, he had just talked about her mouth being like the best wine. Going on in verse 9. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. She takes a moment and celebrates and enjoys the fact that his desire is for her. She takes a moment and relishes in the fact that as she has shared herself with her husband, that he enjoys what he sees, and she just celebrates, I I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I belong to him, and he desires me. Verse 11, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. If I have to tell you what she's enticing him into right now, You probably should be in kid town or something like that. (laughs) She responds to him. Why is this language so graphic in the Bible? And and I don't know if you've read the whole book of Song of Solomon. Some of y'all are like, I ain't reading that until I get married. I understand. I did the same thing after the first time I read it. But why is this graphic imagery, this, this flowery language actually present in the Bible? Why would God put this in the Holy Scriptures? Because he cares about the level of intimacy and love and passion and pursuit of each other that is in all, every marriage, especially between those who are Christians. He cares about that. This is not something to be slept on. This is not something to be pushed to the side. This is not something that we can only talk about but not really talk about it because we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. No, this is something that he cares about. He wants married people to have a love that is amazing, have a love that when it is seen, that when it is noticed, it points to the love that Christ has for his people in beautiful and glorious ways. He wants married people to be crazy about each other. Continue on in verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We jump back in 1 Corinthians, verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I want to pause and make a side note real quick. This would have been extremely, uh, extremely affirming and dignifying to women at this time. Because what he started with when he, talked about, when he talked about wives not having authority over their own body, that's what was normal at the time. Then he goes into also husbands don't have authority over their body, but the wife does. And that would have been extremely countercultural. Paul would have likely been labeled an extremist at this point for this. 
Men or women at that time couldn't even represent themselves in court. Women at that time could be abused by their husbands. There was nothing that they could do legally to make him stop. And Paul looks at the men there and he says, no, 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 it's not just that, but you don't even own your own body. Your wife actually has authority over your body. With this statement, it is likely that Paul just gave women more authority in the church than they had anywhere else in that culture at that time. Very groundbreakingly countercultural, very extreme for Paul to say this. He tells him, no, 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 your wife has authority over you as well. Your wife has authority over you as well. He's building on the point at the same time that, he, that we made last week. Last week, towards the end, Paul said, uh, you're, you're by, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He made the point last week, your body doesn't belong to you. Your body belongs to the Lord. You can't go through life just having the, the attitude of, well, it's my body. I do whatever I want to. And he's like, not if you're a Christian. Not if you were bought with the blood of Jesus. No, no, no. Your body does not just belong to you. You don't get to just make whatever decision you want to make on your own about how you use your body because you don't belong to you ultimately. And then in chapter 7, he carries that same thread. And he says, husbands and wives, not only does your body not just belong to you because it belongs to the Lord, it also belongs to your spouse as well. He is pushing us back. He is pushing us against this, what I, call, I consider a cultural almost mantra that we have, that nobody can tell you what to do with your body. right? No, no one can tell me what to do with my body. It's my body. I do what I want. Paul says, not if you're a follower of Jesus. Not if you're one who claims to, that my pursuit is to love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength, that I give my life, I offer my life as a sacrifice to God. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. If the gospel is real, if the gospel is true, if Jesus did actually come and die for us and rescue us from the judgment of God that we deserve, then he is worthy of us sacrificing all. Then that's a reasonable request for him to make. If he saves us from an eternity, an eternity under his judgment and condemnation so that we could come and know his grace and mercy and have that lavished on us for all eternity, then any sacrifice that we make in this life is worth it. It's worth it. It is a reasonable response to offer our bodies to him and say, Father, do whatever you want to with me, with this life, with my body. That is the response of the Christian. That is the response. He's telling us that our bodies do not belong to us. Continue on verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack and self-control. So he tells them first, do not deprive each other of sex. Enjoy each other. Enjoy each other's love. Enjoy each other's bodies. Don't withhold your body from your spouse. We talked about last week how our bodies are, are a literal part of who we are. Our bodies are not just some, some clothing or some outer garment that our, that our soul wears, but, but we, are, we are combined. We are souls. We are, our bodies are a part of who we are, and thus sharing ourselves with our spouses if we are married is a part of, is a part of sharing who we are at our essence. Sharing our body, a, a husband who shares his, wife, his body with his wife, a wife who shares her body with her husband is actually... A, fully believing that the, the goal in marriage is to share our full selves with each other and not hold anything back from each other. Now, he does give one exception. He says that it is okay to deprive each other so that, you, so that you might devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again. So take your 15 seconds to pray. Like I don't, most of you don't pray longer than 15 seconds. Take your 15 seconds to pray and then come back together is what he's saying. Take your 15 seconds. That's in the, that's in the, the Aunt Frederick commentary. 
Seriously, when I'm, when I'm counseling engaged or married couples, I tell them you can, gen, you can generally measure the health of your sex life by how much God is using it to grow you in love and unity together. I'll say that again. For married couples, you can generally measure the health of your sex life by how much is God using it to grow you in love for one another, grow you in delight for one another, grow you in unity together is a good way to measure the actual health of your sex life. And the degree to which that is true, that you are growing in love and unity uh, via sex with each other, is the degree to which your sex life is healthy, and the degree to which it is not being used to grow you in unity with each other is the degree to which your sex life is not healthy. And this means the health of your sex life is primarily not determined by how often you feel like having sex, whether or not you're using the whatever position or technique or whatever that you fantasize about is not primarily determined just by how frequently you have sex. A lot of married couples, uh, it's not actually growing the two together in unity because maybe one is just feeling guilted into it or whatever reason it is. The health of your sex life in marriage is not primarily determined by how frequently you have an orgasm. It's not primarily determined by how we feel at all. It's primarily determined by is God using it as a means of uniting us together, knitting us together, growing us in intimacy and love and unity with one another. That is the question that we should ask ourselves. If you're married in the room, it's a question I recommend you discussing with your spouse as you seek to have communication and conversation about the health of your sex life together. What I want to do with the rest of the time that I have in front of you uh, today is just try to be a little bit more uh, practical from a standpoint of dealing with hurdles that get in the way of sex life in, the, in Christian marriage as being what God has called it to be. Right? What are some issues, what are some things specifically that can come up that can cause some, some, some difficulties and issues? The first one, uh, first obstacle I'm going to bring up is physical issues. I'll try to hit this one pretty quickly. Uh, for some, there are legitimately uh, biological issues that can get in the way, certain health conditions that can make sex difficult or potentially very uncomfortable or even painful. There are certain hormonal issues that can cause a lack of desire or lack of pleasure. Uh, and I want to say this pretty, uh, pretty quick. Because having a healthy sex life is worth it, I'm just saying seek any type of help that might be uh, available, whether that's talking to a doctor, whether that's reading a book or whatever it is. We recommend the book um, Intended for Pleasure. Uh, specifically for that type of issue, we feel like it's, 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 it's very well written and, uh, and talks to different options that couples might have for experiencing pleasure together more. Uh, for some married couples, it's, it's not that there's a medical uh, issue. I'm going to say this real quick. It's just that sometimes people don't know what they're doing and maybe need a real book. Point number two. Point number two for obstacles that get in the way. Relational issues. Relational issues. For some... The thing that is most getting in the way of a healthy sex life is unresolved conflict in the marriage. Unresolved conflict in the marriage. Maybe there's unforgiveness that's going on. Maybe the unforgiveness has turned into bitterness, and so the thought of being intimate is just not something that you desire at all. Maybe there's something that just recently happened, and you just are, are scared or, or nervous or too frustrated to bring it up so that you can talk about it and deal with. And it is hindering, it's ultimately hindering uh, married couples displaying the type of love that God has for married couples to display, partially because it is hindering the sex life of the married couple. 
If you have this, some type of relational issue that you seem to not be able to get past, I want to recommend talking to somebody in your life group. For some people, it might require like, legitimate marriage counseling. For, for many people, there, it, there's a strength in, in finding help and being helped in working through issues that you've had trouble working through as a couple. Do whatever it is you need to do to pursue true reconciliation with your spouse, to deal with whatever it is that's coming in between y'all. And I have one final point. One final obstacle that I've seen, that we've seen uh, in Midtown across the board uh, in our different churches that gets in the way of couples uh, having a healthy sex life from a biblical standpoint. Uh, It's passivity towards cultivating intimacy. Passivity towards cultivating intimacy. So there's a a, a number of different things that can come in the way. This is something that uh, I would say is pretty frequent um, from my experience and also talking to other pastors at other churches as well. So it looks something like this. Uh, one partner, for whatever reason, is not initiating physical intimacy. That might, be, that might just be holding hands, right? That, that might be hugging. That might be w- whatever it might be. And I'm not saying this is the way for, for, for every couple, but this does happen at times. I can guarantee that. I, I can guarantee that it actually happens a lot. So, so whatever, whatever way that, that, that the, their spouse receives intimacy, one couple is very passive when it comes to that. They're not initiating any type of intimacy, whether that's physical or otherwise. And as a result, the other partner feels unwanted, feels undesired, feels unloved, which can, often, which can and often will make sex more difficult. Or sometimes a person who is passive towards cultivating intimacy through forms of physical affection like holding hands, kissing, and cuddling will want to go zero to 100 and have sex out of the blue, right? So no intimacy at all, and then want to have, want to engage in sex with the spouse. So one spouse is like, babe, I've been reading 1 Corinthians 7. I've been reading Proverbs 5. I was just convicted by the sermon that Ann gave on Sunday. I just want you to know I'm reporting for duty. I'm here for you. I'm reporting for duty. And the other spouse is like, you, you're saying you want to engage, you, you want to have sex when we don't even, we haven't even been having conversation. You haven't even checked in on how I'm doing, right? I, you, haven't smi- you haven't looked at me and smiled in I don't know how long, and you want to have sex, right? So you, so you often have, and this, this oftentimes causes a lot of problems in marriage. So for some of us, for some spouses, Sex is primarily seen as a way that cultivates love and oneness and unity. Primarily seen as a way that cultivates love and oneness and unity. So if there feels like there's distance in the marriage, one spouse will, will say, well, we, I want to have sex so that we can cultivate that, right? And the other spouse sees sex primarily as a way of celebrating and consummating love and, love and unity with each other, right? So the other spouse is like, well, how can you ask me to have sex when we don't have, when the, the unity, the connection is not there? And one spouse is saying, because I'm trying to, I want to do this to help cultivate. And one is like, no, you haven't even smiled at me. I haven't seen your teeth. I have not seen your teeth. And you want to have sex. Some of us need to grow in things like talking to spouses, listening Finding out how your spouse is doing, potentially if your spouse is into it, taking your spouse out on a date, maybe hugging, cuddling, kissing, maybe getting small gifts or writing love notes that to help in other ways to cultivate intimacy as well. If you have a spouse that primarily sees sex as a way of, of celebrating and consummating a love and unity that is already felt. And for some of us, might need to um, 
not in a harmful way, but intentionally pursue and understand, okay, I know that my spouse does love and care about me. I know that God does use sex to unite us. Even though we haven't felt as connected recently, this is something that God can use to connect us together and allow us to to feel more romantic love for each other. One of these, one of the, neither one of the spouses in this scenario are absolutely wrong. But oftentimes what gets in the way is we often don't see the full picture of what God created sex to be. So one spouse sees one aspect of it and, and, and leans more into that part of it, and the other spouse leans more into the other part of it. And a lot of times it takes communication. A lot of times it legitimately takes communication, a mutual understanding of each other to pursue one is to pursue unity together. It ultimately means we remember that our bodies do not belong to us. So the spouse that would say, well, no, I've been, I've been keeping tabs, and we, we've only hugged this many times, or you've only done this with me this many times, so you, you, you ain't earned sex. Right? And then that spouse needs to repent. And the spouse that's like, I'm not going to pursue intimacy with my spouse in any other way other than trying to pursue sex also needs to repent. Right? Because we need to come to realize that our bodies do not belong to us. That's what Paul is pushing on married couples in this passage. That our bodies are not our own. That we don't only do what feels most comfortable, what we feel like doing in the moment. And why is that? Because we are in pursuit of a love that displays the love and unity that Christ has for his people and that his people have for him. We're in pursuit of that. So we do what is necessary and what is beneficial as married couples in pursuing that at times, even if we don't feel like it exactly in the moment. Now, what Paul is not saying here, when he's telling the couple to to give to each other their their conjugal rights, he is not telling one spouse to tell another spouse, hey, this is what you're supposed to do, so get on it right now. That's not what he said. He did not, he didn't, he never, he never told, he, sorry, let me say it a different way. He's talking specifically to the spouse. So if you're hearing me and the, and the primary thing that you're thinking is, yep, I need to get my spouse on it. They ain't, they're, not, they're not making a the cut. They're not doing what they're, what they're supposed to be doing. You're looking at this all wrong. He never told them, so now go tell your spouse to do this. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's talking to wives. He's talking to husbands individually and saying, this is the, this is the uh, posture and perspective that you are supposed to have. We remember that our bodies don't belong to us. So if I need to do better about initiating other acts of physical affection, then that's what I need to do. If I need to do better about being willing to give myself to my spouse sexually, even when they haven't shown the amount of affection that I would have desired by this time, then that's what I need to do because my body does not belong to me. If you're married, you don't don't just belong to yourself anymore. Your body belongs to you. It belongs to God. It belongs to your spouse, which is a difficult thing. I would say this concept in general is a very challenging concept concept that requires much sacrifice. I'm talking about whether you're married or you're single, right? If you're single and, and, and the charge from Paul in chapter six is, hey, your body does not belong to you. You don't get to just use it for whatever you want to use it for. You need to use it for God's purposes or whether you're married and, say, and, and Paul says your body doesn't just belong to you. It belongs to God and it belongs to your spouse. So you need to use it for God's purposes. This is a difficult thing to do. In a few minutes, we're going to partake in communion together. And I will say, and it might not come across this way at first thought, I would say communion is an excellent, excellent application to hearing this sermon. Because as we're called to not 
view our bodies as strictly belong to, uh, belonging to us. When we go to the communion table and we see the bread that is broken that represents Jesus' body and we see the juice that is there that represents his blood, we're reminded that he didn't see his body as something that just belonged to him. And he didn't use his body strictly for his own purposes, but for the purposes of others. He sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his body. Our Savior did not count his body as if it was his own. So we as his people count our bodies as if it does not just belong to us. May that be on our minds today as we approach the communion table. That our God and our Father, that he looked at his body, that, he, that sorry, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he looked at his body, when he came to this earth, he was like, this does not just belong to me. I'm going to use it for the purposes of glorifying God. And whether we are single or if we're married, that is what we use our bodies to do. We don't get to just do whatever we want to with them. We don't get to use them only for ourselves. We, we, we use them for the glory of God, for his purposes. I want to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, we'll open up the communion table and approach the communion table together. If you're sitting beside your, uh, your spouse today, if you can grab their hand as I pray, I just want to take a little time to lift up the couples. Father, I'm grateful for the marriages in this room. I'm grateful for how I've seen our married couples in this room fight for the health of their marriage. Father, would you... Grant a delight in each other to the married couples in this room that is amazing, that points to you, that points to your love, that points to your goodness to us and points to our response to you, Lord. Father, for the couples who are struggling with with sex, for the couples that are struggling with with any type of physical intimacy at all, Father, would you grant them a a, a new energy, a new passion for each other, a new zeal for each other, a new delight in each other, Lord? For the couples that are holding hands, Father, would you renew their love? Would you make it fresh for them? Would you rid it of anything that might feel stale or might feel old or might feel mundane or might just feel like we're just doing the same thing over and over? Would you grant a freshness to all of our married couples in the room today and in our church that weren't able to make it here today? Father, will you help us to remember that our bodies really do not belong to us, that we were bought with a price because of your love, because you didn't see your body as belonging to you? that you were willing to sacrifice your body for us, that you were willing to to use your body for the purposes of God. Would you help all of us in this room, married and single alike, to use our bodies for the same purpose, for your glory, that we wouldn't just see our bodies as a means of us getting whatever it is that we want, but that we would see our body as a means for your glory, that we would see our bodies as, as, as a means for your name to be made much of in our lives. Father, for every married couple in this room, would you use their love to display how good you are, to display your love for your people? We need your power to do it. We need your power to do it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.